0: Hello and welcome to the newest episode of GraphQL Radio. My name is Max, I'm the CEO at Stellate, where we do GraphQL edge caching. And I'm here today with Luke. Luke is the VP of Engineering at Medium. Yes, that Medium. medium Medium.com, the one where you've read probably dozens if not hundreds of articles over the years. And when I was speaking with Luke recently, he mentioned that Medium's engineering team is comparatively tiny for what I would have thought is a really major global operation, a brand that pretty much everybody has heard of. And so I really, Luke, want to just start off with what's the story of Medium? And in particular, what's the story of Medium's engineering team? How big is it today and how did we get there? How are you running such a major operation with such a tiny team?
1: Yeah, it's pretty crazy. A lot of people, basically everyone that I talk to, that asks me, hey, what's it like at Medium? How big is the team? And I tell them the answer, they're always pretty pretty shocked because it is a relatively small team. We are much more like an early stage startup than we are like the size and scale that Medium is as a product. So I've been at Medium for about a year and a half now. So I'm relatively new. Medium is over 10 years old now. I think we're coming up on 11 years of operation. And our engineering team today is 37 engineers. And that wow. is everything from mobile, web, backend, DevOps, QA and IT. So it's like, it is just a really small team. And one of the interesting things was when I joined Medium a year and a half ago, I came in through an acquisition. And one of the things that was really compelling for me in this role was the fact that Medium, with as big of an influence as it has on the industry, knowing that hey, I could come in and have tremendous impact and everybody that we hire, everybody on the team has just insane impact on what we're doing. That was really exciting because if you talk with engineers, that's like one of the things everybody always says. It's like, hey, what are you looking for in your role? What are you excited about? What do you want to get out of your next job? And people, a lot of people will say impact. And man, I can, there is no better place to have tremendous impact on something that is so widely known and used than at Medium, every single person at the company plays a real critical role in what we're doing. So so that's been super fun and, and interesting and, and a bit of a challenge in some ways. So you asked, what was Medium's story? How did it get there? Medium's engineering team was not always that small. Medium's gone through different phases of it over the years. There was a period where they had hired a lot of people and the company grew. I think at some point, again, this predates me, but my understanding is that the engineering team probably peaked around 90 people over the years through different things like, hey, you know, some minor pivots and attrition through some years. And then there was some company restructuring and layoffs that happened that really got the team down smaller to what it is today. And part of that was intentional, part of it probably wasn't, but that is where we are today. And we actually feel pretty good about the size that we are. It's not like we're saying, holy crap, we got to get out of this. And how do we double the size of our team? I actually think it feels pretty good right now. One of the things that I told the team and that we talk about quite a bit is I think every engineer knows and understands the idea that like adding people to a project does not necessarily make it go faster. Right. I feel like that's like management's like that's their lever that they know how to pull. Right. It's like, oh, that project's going too slow. Put some more people on it. And the engineers involved in the projects know that that's just not how it works. It doesn't work that way. Adding more people is just means more overhead, means more, you know, trying to coordinate things and shoot. Now we're stepping on toes and your PR messed up mine and. There's just a lot of that stuff going on. And, and if that's true, if we believe that's true, you can also believe that sometimes smaller teams actually go faster. They both have to be true sometimes. And so that was one of the things that we did at Medium was like, let's intentionally have a pretty small team and let's get really good executing with that team. Let's see how we can, you know, get things stable, get things, building new things quickly and, you know, really get to know each other and execute well together as a group. And then from there, let's see where the holes are and let's rehire. I don't want to just keep the team small just for the sake of keeping it small, but let's see what the real needs are. Where could we add people to really
0: help grow things? And in fact, we actually had a new employee start today. So, I'm really excited about that. Nice. There's this funny idea that I was saying that I sometimes hear that nine women can't make a baby in one month, you know? Right. And I think yeah. the same thing applies in engineering to a certain extent, right? Where you can't just keep throwing people at projects. It's not going to work. You got to, like you say, make the most of the people that you have. So you came into this acquisition into Medium. What was the kind of context under which you were acquired? Like what was your goal as this new VP of engineering at Medium? What was kind of like the problem that you're dealing with or that you were hired to deal with? What did all of that look like at the time?
1: Yeah, I think there's a few different answers to it. So before Medium, I was working at a company called Projector, which was a startup that we were working on uh, design software for visual storytelling. And what that looked like, I mean, if you Maybe you can compare it to Canva, I guess, right? Where a lot of it was social media graphics, presentations and slides, other even like we, we did like pay, like published web pages and those sorts of things as well with the idea of being focusing on the storytelling aspect of it, right? Like the storytelling is what makes the content interesting. And so we were working on that. We had actually just released maybe a year before we joined Medium. We had just launched our product publicly and that was growing and, and going pretty well. And at that time, Ev Williams, who is the CEO of Medium, reached out to us and said, hey, you know, this stuff's really cool. I love what you guys are working on. What do you think if you came in to Medium and we could think a little bit more about, you know, the way that we publish content online? Medium is very text heavy. It'd be really cool to get into some like more multimedia, interesting representations of of ideas and more graphical interfaces. And that was super compelling. And our missions were very aligned. It was all about how do you help people tell their story? How do you get the most interesting ideas out there and give them life and give them an audience? We were really trying to achieve the same sorts of things, but with very different products. And so we were really excited about that. And in those conversations, we also knew and talked with the team at Medium quite a bit and recognized that like, oh, there's a lot of work to do still with medium. Everybody knows medium, but it had been pretty, I'll say stagnant. For a few years, there were some real struggles that were happening and like how the product runs. You would see like lots of people complain about how slow Medium is. It doesn't even load that fast. And holy smokes, like the product's getting pretty noisy with lots of pop-ups. And please download the app and please click here to sign up. And, you know, just like everything that Medium was not intended to be. That's kind of what it slowly became over time. And so I was also intrigued by that. Just as an engineer, like that was... You would think like, hey, a blog, like it shouldn't be that hard. I don't know. It's the it's like the to-do app or, not, you know, like the first <laughs> tutorial app that everybody learns is like, how do you host a blog? And so one of the things that I was also really interested in, and I cared a lot about Medium just as a product, as a user of the product was like, I want to get in and, and see where we're at with that. And how is that going? And how can I help on that? And so when we joined, I was brought in and joined the team as VP of engineering. They were looking for a new engineering lead. And so I was excited about that. So when I joined, it was kind of both parts of those. It was Was hey, there's a lot of product stuff that we want to do and figure out in terms of what's the future of storytelling in Medium. How do we start to expand past text? And we haven't really done much of that yet, but some places that we that we're talking about it. And then also on top of it is just, hey, how do we get the team and the product executing really well? How do we get back to the basics of what made Medium great, which is great design, great content, you know, really fast, stable. And so that's kind of what we focus on for the last year and a half. And I feel really good about it. It's pretty great. We've made some huge progress with what I've, you know, what I mentioned earlier is a really small team. So it's been
0: fun. It's been rewarding. The immediate question that comes to my mind with what you're seeing, focusing on having this kind of like smaller team on purpose, not with holes, but just with people that are that gel well, that work well together, that know each other really well, that can execute really well. How do you think about, as a leader of this department with all these people, how do you think about hiring and retention? Because I'm sure that influences your strategy around how you hire and train and keep people over time to make sure that the small team, like, I guess what I'm saying is, attrition must matter much more, right? If you have 36 people and one person leaves, you've lost 1 36th of your engineering organization, then it's probably a critical person because everybody's critical at that size, right? And so then in comparison, if you had a, 300-person engineering team. One person leaving maybe matters less. So how do you as a VP of engineering kind of change the way that you think about hiring and retention with this constraint in mind of having to work with or wanting to work with a small team?
1: My experience with this, I mean, I so my background, I worked at companies of every size. I worked at Microsoft (laughs) for years and at the time there was no bigger tech company. And I worked at Twitter for Uh, a handful of years as that grew from, you know, 900 employees to 6,000 or something whenever it was that I left. And then I've worked at really small startups. Like I said, Projector, I I was the first three people at Projector. And so that a company like that hiring and attrition really matters, right? Because one person leaves and it's a quarter of your company. And so when you think about, hey, how does that work at a startup? And it's like, well, you have to put a lot of effort into making sure that it's a place that people want to work. And a lot goes into that. It has to be, you know, mission driven. It has to have real solid business strategy and goals that feel achievable. And you're making progress on those. And you can show that, hey, this is, you know, we're, we're doing well here. The work has to be meaningful. People have to feel like they're playing a critical role in it. The work has to be fun. I am, I'm a huge believer in the work has to be fun. If it's not fun, people will absolutely leave. So that's a big part of it. And what goes into that is everything from team building to just like who you work with, having a team of people that you enjoy working with to, like I said, even having like a good code base to work in is a big part of the fun part of being an engineer. And so there's a lot that goes into that. And so through working at a few different startups, really small startups and experiencing that there coming to Medium, I just brought all of those same concepts, right? Everything from, hey, let's have really clear expectations and roles for people. Let's have it be obvious where you fit in and why your role is important. Let's get rid of things that are just in the way and kind of annoying. Is it legacy code and legacy code? Like, Let's go clean that up. Let's get that into a state where you don't hate working on it. And let's start making real progress towards meaningful goals as a company. How do we set those? What should those be? How do we make sure that they're achievable? And let's start tracking it and celebrating the wins along the way. And then, even like, I would say dumb things because they seem simple, but they're not dumb at all, which is just team building part. Like, how do we spend time together as a group? How do we get to know each other? How do we talk about non-work stuff sometimes? And so, you know, even doing some of that, just because that is a huge part of what your job is. And so there's a lot of effort that goes into those sorts of things. And I am no way perfect at this at all. I don't know. Like, I feel like I'm still trying to figure it out. But I will say, like, our team at Medium has been really strong. Yeah, we haven't had that issue really yet. I don't expect that to continue. I do expect people to leave over time and that we'll have to figure out how to replace them and what does that look like. But that really hasn't been a recent issue for us on the engineering team.
0: Which speaks volumes about you as an engineering leader. Just from what it's (laughs) worth,
1: I I I take almost no credit for that. The the thing about it really is like it's a great team. Everyone is you know you can rely on them. You it has to be sustainable. That's the other part. Like the work has to be sustainable. Like if people are burning out, that's also when people think, hey, you know what? Maybe I should go do something else. And so the reality of it is, I mean, I've been in management off and on over the last ten years, and so it's not like I'm brand new to management. But I've also been an engineer in the last three years as an IC. Right? Like, I know what it's like to be an engineer. I know what it feels like to be an engineer. I know what it feels like to burn out. I know what it feels like to have crappy, you know, expectations set on you that are unrealistic with the pressure of like delivering on a deadline that makes no sense based on what the product spec is. And like, Just get rid of that crap. Like, get rid of it. Like, get people set up on stuff that they're excited about. Get all of the process out of the way so that they can do great work on it. And let's start moving towards the product that we all want to build. And in doing so, my experience is people end up happier. They end up liking their job. They end up, you know, really enjoying what they're doing. And in this case... The company performs better. Medium has done more in the last year than I think it probably had in the last five years, both in terms of delivering on a great product that users love and on the performance of how that product's going. The last year has been really good for Medium. So I'm
0: pretty excited about it. It's great. Were there any particular changes that you made that stuck out to you as, or that the team made that stuck out to you as, oh, wow, this really clicked things into a new order of magnitude in terms of how much we're delivering or the quality we're delivering? Were there like procedural changes, process changes? Were there cultural changes? Were there some of these things where you're like, we did this tiny change where like we introduced levels or we introduced clear expectations for where people are at and suddenly everybody started performing like 10x better? Were there things that stick out to you on this journey over the last one and a half years that really made an outsized impact compared to what you would have expected initially?
1: There are two. One is a management thing and one is a technical thing. The technical one that we did pretty early on was when I joined looking at like, hey, what's the state of the site and stability, even costs and those sorts of things. And one of the things that we did early on was like, hey, our costs, our hosting costs are just way too high. Our Amazon bill is just enormous too much for what we're doing. And we have to figure out how to get that down. The reality of it was, was like, it just wasn't really the focus for a while for the engineering team. There was a lot that was just unknown to the team, right? And so part of the effort was, hey, let's go investigate and let's just figure out, like, let's just get a sense. If it needs to cost that much, it needs to cost that much, but can we at least understand why it costs what it costs? We actually spent quite a few months it might have been like three months. It might have been like the. It wasn't the first month, but I think it was the second and third and fourth month that I was at Medium. That that's all we did as a team. It was like, hey, we're gonna go clean some stuff up, and we're gonna go see how if we can cut costs. Our hosting costs. And in doing so, the thing that really stood out was everywhere we looked where there were places for us to where we were like calling patterns weren't optimized, or we weren't caching stuff properly, or we're querying too much data, just throwing it away. It's not even used for the request that was making it or even like just configuration was set up bad. Every time we made an attempt at like cleaning some of that stuff up, not only did the hosting costs come down, but at the same time performance improved the page load time got way better and the stability did so like what's our uptime what percentage of requests are having errors all of that improved together so it wasn't just a hey let's go focus on cutting costs and you know maybe it causes issues in other places but i think the realization that we had as an entire team and as a company was like holy crap any efforts on these things to do just to implement great engineering practices helps us in every direction. And that's on top of the, hey, it's simpler to maintain. It's easier for the team to manage and keep in their heads. It's easier to work with. If there are issues in the future, we find them faster. But then on top of it, again, page load times dropped more than in half and stability has been improved greatly. And so, I mean, our Amazon bill from a year and a half ago to today, it was almost cut in half. I think we're at 55%. Amazon doesn't love this, but like we're at 55% (laughs) percent of what we were a year and a half ago for our amazon bill and that's with more traffic it's with more load it's with more stability and faster load times and so that's one that we did that was just i think as a team the team rallied around like hey you know what actually this thing that we always kind of hypothesize as engineers and believe that like if you do things well it'll pay off is just true
0: it just is true in the end. You know what's funny is, that actually reminds me of this quote by I think Mark Twain, although I'm not entirely sure, about if I'd had more time, I would have written a shorter letter, right? It's almost like you had to spend the time to figure out, okay, based on all this stuff that we've accumulated over the years, what is our short letter, right? What do we actually need as a business? And how can we do that in the most cost-efficient way, in the simplest way? But getting to that simplicity takes time, right? It's effort, it's not easy. It's actually usually pretty hard, but, once you're there, you have a system that's easier to understand, You a system that's run cheaper, that's faster. And so you just end up with all these benefits because suddenly you've kind of simplified your overall system. You've written a short letter, so to say, about what it takes to run Medium and to cover the business needs that are there. Yeah, that's exactly
1: right. I mean, that's like you said, it does take effort. It did take us a bunch of time to get back into that state where things felt pretty good, but just definitely worth it. It's a better foundation to start from if, we, if we're really saying and where we are as mediums saying, hey, there's a lot that we want to build. There's a lot that we want to how we want to improve this platform. Let's get back to a simpler state that we can start from because it's really easy to just keep adding on and keep adding on and not realizing like, man, this this thing's just unmanageable. And you can hide it. You can hide it behind a big team. That's why a lot of these big companies have big teams, right? You just say, you know what, we're never going to pay it down. Just hire more people. You can kind of hide the issues. You can hide the inefficiencies behind teams. And you just don't see them, right? Like that feels like the easy solution. It's just so much better the other way. I don't know. It just is. So, what was that second one that you mentioned? Oh yeah, the you second was one. Because you you mentioned leveling and that sort of thing was, we took way too long to do this because we actually just rolled this out a couple months ago, I think it was in April, and that was a new engineering ladder. Medium had like a pretty generic- Right like, style. Yeah, like, yeah. And they had one that was supposed to be for all roles at the company, all departments. And they were pretty generic. I mean, they, it, was, it was helpful, but like it was pretty generic, right? So it was like, hey, if you're senior level, that means you're doing your own work independently, but you're also helping those around you. And it's like, cool, that's great. But like, what does that mean in practice for me as an engineer? And so it was on our list as something that we wanted to do, but always just kind of kept punting it because it felt like, you know, it wasn't the most urgent. We had something in place. We just didn't feel that great about it. And so we actually just redid that and rolled that out to the team in April. And we kept it pretty simple, but it was specific, right? Like, hey, as an engineer, this is what it means for your level. This is what you're expected to do in terms of, you know, like how good should your technical documents be? Do you own your own launch plans for your projects? And... What does it even mean to be the lead for a project? And you know, just to define some of these terms and what does it look like to do a great job at it? And I wanted to roll it out so that I could help my managers have better conversations with their engineers so that we could have you know just better conversations around performance reviews and that sort of thing and have some consistency around, hey, who are we considering for promotions and those sorts of things. The thing I didn't expect was it almost instantly changed the way a lot of us work on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Just overnight, many people immediately saw holes in what they were doing and like, oh, shoot, I didn't realize I was supposed to be good at this and I haven't been good at it. So let me step up. Communication improved, like instantly, just people proactively, hey, look, I'm going to be better at communicating what's going on with my project or hey, I'm going to clean up my dock because I realized like I haven't updated it in a while on this thing that I've been working on and I should probably update it and send it out. And that was not a request. Like, I mean, it was in the latter, but it wasn't a like specific, hey, can everyone go take some time and like find where you can improve and do like it was just by putting that out there that people were able to more clearly see where they can improve and then do it themselves. I mean, A, it speaks a lot to our team that like we do have a team of pretty senior engineers that are capable of like motivating themselves to do those sorts of things. But also like I 100% if I was joining another company in this role, I would do that again. And I would do it much sooner just because that clarity really helps it helps everybody just understand have a better understanding of like What is it? I'm really supposed to be doing and like where are places that I could improve? What does it mean to be better at this job? So that was cool That was that was actually a surprise to me I did not expect that to have the impact that it did
0: You know, it's funny to hear you mention that because our CEO, Sue, she we're a startup, right? We're we are even less people than you are. We are we're 20 people just about right now and As part of that we already introduced levels across pretty much all our departments when we had, I think, maybe five or six engineers, right? And people kind of looked at us as though we were crazy, like, you're, you're, you've got six people, why are you introducing levels? But we actually felt much of the same effect by clearly outlining what is expected of you and what does it actually mean to be a senior, junior staff, principal engineer at Stellate. The immediate effect it had is that people got more focused on doing the things that mattered, right? And to me, the hard part is actually defining what does it mean to be a great engineer at Stellate, right? Like that to me was quite a challenge because there's so many things that you could encapsulate but you really to understand what matters to the business. And then we put that into levels and job descriptions and it immediately made a big difference. Now, I'm not gonna say that our levels are perfect There's certainly iterations to be made and our our job descriptions could always be better. But we've certainly felt much of the same effect. And it's kind of gratifying to hear that the same thing is true at Medium at your scale.
1: Yeah, the same for us. I mean, I don't feel like ours is perfect at all, but it was just it was really, (laughs) really rewarding. And, you know, it, it felt good because the engineers were like, yes, please, like give this to us so that we have something concrete to go off of. You know, like what should I be focusing on or what should I be spending more time on or less time on? One of the things you mentioned was business impact. And that was actually one of the things that we framed our whole ladder around was because we're such a small team, your impact on the business is a big part of your performance. And... You know, like not everybody has like specific like, hey, if I do this, then this like, I don't know, sometimes though, the impact is indirect, right? It's like, hey, I'm one person on a project that's, you know, 10 people working on this thing and I'm an engineer and I'm not even sure that I'm picking the like product spec around this, which is the real thing that's going to have the most impact on like, how does this perform in production? But one of the things that I, I wanted to encourage with the team is like, we have to have opinions on this though, right? Even as engineers, I want you to be domain experts. If you're working on our membership team, learn about pricing dynamics. Learn about what what does memberships mean. Like, what do other companies do? What's out there? What has worked for other companies? What hasn't worked? Like, we should be experts at this and have some opinions on it. I find that's where it's real interesting and where you as an individual can grow a lot and become super valuable at your next role, because I don't expect everyone to stay at Medium forever. But at your next role is like to be able to come in and have some, you know, tangible expertise and say, hey, you know what, actually, I've done this before. This is how it's supposed to work. And that stuff's really cool. And I think that's where people can have like real business impact. And so tuning it to that has been real kind of a challenge because like sometimes you kind of have to squint and but has been really, really kind of a fun conversation within the company.
0: Yeah, I can only imagine. I feel like that's the, quite possibly the biggest difference between the really experienced engineers that I know and kind of the, the slightly less experienced engineers. The slightly less experienced engineers have more of a tendency to do tech for tech's sake, right? They'll do something because it's cool or because they think it's the best solution, right? Or they're like, ah, if I just do this right, right? And there's, this, there's a strong pull towards, you know, good engineering for good engineering's sake, right? And I think the really experienced engineers that I know, they always look at it from the business angle, right? And they always look at it, they combine it with that business lens of what actually matters to our business. Is performance important to our business or not? If I'm building a B2B dashboard, optimizing my database queries is probably not the best use of my time, right? If that dashboard loads in two seconds, three seconds instead of 500 milliseconds, are my customers really going to care? No. If I'm medium though, and I have however many millions of readers that try to read articles in all parts of the world, then oh, suddenly performance might be really important, right? And actually spending that time on, on Under air quotes, over engineering that performance, right, and really focusing on making sure that everything is fast, suddenly makes business sense, right? But understanding that is really difficult, and as a leader, I found the big challenge is how do you communicate the kind of context of your business to the engineering team, right? To where you can go to the engineering team and be like, hey, here's what we're doing. Here's which things matter from an engineering perspective. And so you've got to focus on these things. And these things don't matter, right? These things to our business are kind of irrelevant. It's not important for us. Have you found a way to encapsulate that for Medium's engineering team? Is there some kind of set of values or principles that you live by or try to live by that kind of encodes what engineers are meant to be focused on and what's important for Medium?
1: Yeah, I think it's exactly what you just said, which is what matters to us. Innovate on the stuff that matters. Don't innovate on the stuff that doesn't matter to us. Like there, Some things are going to be unique to medium, some things aren't. Let's spend the time on the things that are. And let's find other easier, simpler solutions for the things that aren't. Any time that we spend on the things that aren't unique to our business is just time wasted. And I don't know, just for the sake of clarity, because I, I, there are some tech companies that do this intentionally. And I actually do think it's a good idea if this is what your strategy is, which is building tech because you want to participate in either the open source community or you're trying to also sell your tech as a service separate from what your mainline business is. Like that is a thing, right? Like lots of companies do this. I mean, especially the big tech companies at some point they get into this. That's how AWS got here, right? Is because you start building tools that you are using for yourself, but now you're letting other people use them for you. And it maybe becomes your biggest business. And that's actually a pretty cool strategy. Medium actually did do a lot of that early on. I think that their intent, and again, like I wasn't here, we actually don't even have very many employees that were here. We have one employee on our engineering team that's been here for a while, but Basically, everybody else on our engineering team has joined Medium in like the last two and a half years, which out of an 11 year company is just so recent. So there's so much historical context that we've lost, which is really Mm -hmm. a challenge. But uh, that early Medium team, they built a lot of stuff in-house custom implementations of things. And you can tell by the way that it was written, it was being set up intentionally so that it could spin off as, hey, and here's a service that we run that other people can use, or here's a library that we're going to publish that we're going to let other people use. And a lot of it was built that way from the beginning. But I think also it was around the time that they were imagining becoming a massive tech company, right? With thousand employees or whatever it is. That's not what we are. So it's not the context that makes sense for us anymore, but we do still have a lot of these pieces in place. And so one of the things that we've looked at is where are places that we can take off the shelf solutions and replace in-house solutions even if it ends up costing us more which has not yet been true but even if it were to cost us a little bit more it's worth it because it's just another whole system that we don't have to know we don't have to debug we don't have to add to when we need new features or whatever we just have to maintain it one specific example of this is are you familiar with image proxy At all?
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, So, (laughs) to a medium extent, but yeah. yeah. So, Medium had their own in-house implementation of like image processing for things like generating thumbnails, caching different size images for like loading size loading images, and then like the full res ones. They built all of this in-house. They had like a really robust service for this that we hosted, all written in Go. It's pretty impressive, actually. I mean. It hadn't been touched in years, so it was kind of incomplete, missing a lot of features that are now pretty standard out there that we needed. And so as we were like building new features and realized, shoot, this doesn't support everything that we needed to support, we looked at alternatives and image proxies one that I was familiar with that we ended up using, which is just it does just that. You can host it and it does image processing for you. And we actually replaced our in-house implementation with this. So it was like, you know, tens of thousands of lines of code that we're able to delete from our code base, replace with just this one service that we got off the shelf that we pay for. And they don't end up being more expensive. They end up being cheaper. Not only do we not have to maintain it, it actually saves us, that was $40,000 a month off of our Amazon bill by switching from our in-house implementation to image proxy. This is an ad for image proxy is what this is. Go use image proxy. (laughs) Um, It's like super cheap to run. We didn't have to deal with like paying for the caching in S3 of all of our, you know, different thumbnails that we were generating and all that. We just had a ton of it. So being able to clean that up, get that out, replace it with something off the shelf. It's so much easier. It's more robust. It handles more cases for us, use cases for us in the product. And it's just way cheaper and just less of a headache on the team. So I'm a huge proponent of that. We've been looking for a bunch of them, which I don't, you didn't ask this, but like, which is why we've even talked with you at Stellate around, hey, what does it look like to do some of this uh, GraphQL caching and, and management? Because that's some of the stuff that A, we have some stuff built in-house for it. And B, we've considered building some stuff in-house for it. And it's like, hey, if there's this solution out there that we don't have to build, that sounds great. Let's talk about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a lot of the conversations that I have every day, right? Because Stellate is so unique in the market that there's really not many alternatives apart from building your own. To so where companies come to us and they're like, we've either built our own and it doesn't work anymore, or we're thinking about building our own, but that doesn't really make sense, right? And, and people look at the cost of SaaS services and they don't take into account how much effort and money and time they have to put into in terms of their engineering resources to. Maintain, right, and then, but also maintain all that code, right? And as image processing, I'm sure as WebP came around, right? Suddenly you had to have WebP support in order to serve the most efficient images. Now suddenly who adds, who adds it to the product roadmap to add WebP support to your image processing service, right? When is that ever going to be a priority? Whose engineering time are you going to put on that? Whereas when you're paying for a service, that service provider is extremely encouraged to add support for whatever the latest thing is that they need to do because that's their whole business right and when your whole business is image processing you better have support for all the latest images image formats or whatever it is because that's what people pay you for right and i think people many people don't know how to make that calculation and it's always an interesting conversation and i think now particularly with the macroeconomic climate actually there's a more of a trend towards buy versus build because people just don't have just frothy money laying around to hire more people, right? Yes, if you have a public market, a stock market, and the VC kind of ecosystem that just throws money at people, then maybe you can just throw humans at the problem, right? You just spin up a whole new team to build graphical edge caching from scratch. But nowadays, that really doesn't make much sense anymore for most businesses. And so a lot of more of them are coming to us, and they're like, hey, look, we just want to buy the best solution from people that have spent years thinking about this, versus trying to replicate it internally, which is just a waste of everybody's time.
1: And it seems like every problem has some company trying to just like excel at that one thing, right? So no matter what it is, you can usually find some solution that's going to be better than what you would build in-house, unless you're going to dedicate a large team to it for a long time, right? Even if in this case, GraphQL caching, if we wanted to say, hey, we were going to do it, how long? Like That team has to then live on forever, right? Because it's not like you're ever done with it. Like There are going to be changes. There are going to be issues. We're going to need to update it and keep improving it. It's just, you have a whole company for it, I'm assuming you don't have a, you know, next November, we're going to be done and then we're done with it. And it's like, no, it just, it goes on forever. And that's what ends up happening inside a lot of tech companies. So you spin up a team and then that team, not only does it stay around forever, but it just continues to grow too. And so it's just more and more people that you dedicate to that one thing. And like I said, I'm not criticizing that approach. Like that works in some cases. If that's what your goal is, but that's just not the goal. It shouldn't be the goal of as many companies as do it. How about that? I'll say that. Um, <laughs> some some companies just just focus on what your product is. Just make your product great. Like that's where you should focus your time and your money. And these solutions are great. Maybe they didn't exist 10 years ago when your company started, but they probably do today. Go look for them and find them.
0: That thing that you probably did have to build in-house 10 years ago, you don't have to anymore. So don't do it. Github acquired my my last type of spectrum and so I was at Github just after Microsoft acquired them. And internally at that time there was a huge push to use other people's services for things that aren't uniquely Github, kind of similar to what you're talking about. Github had literally internally built a version of Slack, a version of Zendesk, a version of an internal forum, not even technical solutions. We're literally talking like they had built chat for their internal teams from scratch, you know? And you're looking at that and you're going, okay, not only is it worse than Slack because Slack has a huge team focused on building chat, it's unreliable, and it's taking up our engineers' time, right? And so they had a huge cultural shift where they went from, we're going to build everything in-house to we're going to outsource as much as possible and focus on the value that we can uniquely provide. And it was a huge differentiator to their delivery speed because suddenly, if you remember after the Microsoft acquisition, one of the big qualms that people had with GitHub was that it moved really slowly and really nothing about GitHub had changed in years, right? That really mattered. And that was one of the reasons why. I mean, there were other internal reasons for sure as well and cultural reasons, but that was one of the big reasons why. And so by changing that culture, suddenly more engineers we're working on GitHub-specific improvements that actually matter to the people that use GitHub every day. And it turns out that makes users happy. When you listen to their feedback and you actually make improvements based on what they're saying, it turns out your users are going to start really liking you. Yeah. Who would have thought? You know, it seems really obvious, but that made a big difference. It does seem obvious, but for some reason, companies really struggle with it.
1: I mean, it's one of the things that we... have focus on i mean i said the last year at medium has been really good and but one of the things that we focus on was like stop chasing experiment numbers just focus on like we know what a good product is we're all users of this product make it the product we want to use and in doing so that's done more for like our growth and more for our customer satisfaction at the same time as any of these like, you know, random, hey, we did this A-B test and it looked like we could get 2% increase here. So that's what we did, even though no one really believed that it was a good thing for the product. (laughs) And it's just like, you know, moving out of that mode and into the mode of just like, listen to your users, listen, trust your gut on what is a great product and go build the product that people want. And if you do, and then still people don't want to use it, then you got a problem, right? And you should address what that real problem is. But if you are resigned to the idea that just, you know, getting a 1% increase here and a 1% increase there when you haven't like fully made it as a company, like just,
0: ooh, that's scary, pretty risky. Yeah. Given that this is GraphQL Radio, I also have to ask about the technical Please. side of things. Yeah. At what scale does Medium operate today? I don't know, whatever numbers you can share. And then what does it take to run a system of that scale? What are the parts that are involved? Like what are the main architectural pieces that you have today that are really critical to what you're doing?
1: Yeah, let's see. Yeah, scale. I was just looking at some of these because I figured they would, some of them would come up. But like our biggest surface is our post page, right? It's like people landing on Medium to read a story. And that comes through so many different surfaces, whether it's like through social media and they click on a link that they saw on Twitter or even Google search and they end up through, you know, Google search results on, onto Medium. That's our biggest, by far our biggest traffic page. And we serve something like 500 a second of those. Jeez. Which is kind of a lot. And then if you're looking at like GraphQL queries, of course all of those pages have, you know, multiple GraphQL queries and stuff and it looks like our GraphQL we serve like 10,000 a second. Is how many GraphQL queries? Wow. We serve. And that's across like everything, right? Like all of our pages, everything that we load different components Apps, loading things all this stuff. asynchronously, right? And then every page that we render, we render SSR and But then like things get client rendered as well. And so, you know, if you're navigating around the site, once the site has loaded, we fetch those things asynchronously. So the scale is pretty enormous. It does mean that we have to have like pretty robust services and able to scale up and down because also that traffic is pretty noisy. We get like huge increases in traffic throughout different times of the day and even different times of the week. And so, pretty spiky, we actually spent quite a bit of time this last year just getting our services to be able to auto-scale really well. And so, our backend is, we have a bunch of different microservices. If you ask me, I'd say too many. I'm not sure my team would say too many, but it (laughs) seems like too many. I think we have something like 80 different services running on our backend, but for a team of 37, I was about to say, two to three microservices per person. Yeah, it doesn't... I mean, and not even everyone's working on them, so like... It's, yeah, it's, it's too many, but they're all pretty small and like, you know, supposed to be focused on one, you know, specific thing with the idea that they can scale up independently and that sort of thing. One of the issues that we had in terms of costs was just that like, we weren't great at auto scaling these. So a lot of them were over provisioned and just running, you know, so that they could handle the spikes in traffic and that sort of thing. So we actually spent a bunch of time tuning that sort of thing and making it so that, you know, we, we could predict when these spikes would happen and that we can pre-scale some services that are going to get hit and that we can manage that. So we do a bunch of that stuff. Our actual, like most of our data is stored in Dynamo. We have some stuff mm. in in uh, RDS, but most of it's stored in Dynamo, which I'm not sure. I mean, it works fine. It's pretty low maintenance for us, but it's kind of expensive and not always in the right form for what we want. But I mean, it works enough for now. So it's not like a high, high priority focus for us. Our services are a combination of Go, and node. So medium originally had like one monolith node service and that one managed most of the traffic most of the requests did lots of the things like you know fetching posts fetching users putting feeds together those sorts of things some of the other things that we've done recently is like starting to pull out some of that logic out of that main monolith that thing's just expensive to run right because if you get a spike in any one piece of it the whole thing has to scale to handle it and so pulling out some of those pieces like pulling out authentication into its own service or whatever it is has actually helped a lot and so, you, you know, you're always trying to find this balance of like, hey, how, how much are we making it difficult to manage and having all of these things separated into their own service versus having one monolith? There's only one service that you have to know and really understand versus like, yeah, but it's just it's hard to manage. It's hard to scale. It's hard to do that. And then like we just have caching layers on top of everything. Right. So we have caching layers on top of Dynamo. We use DAX on top of Dynamo in a lot of cases. But then we also have our own caching layers for things like, like I said, like GraphQL queries or, you know, queries between services where we know that those are expensive and sometimes we can cache them if we know that they're not updating frequently or whatever it is. So we do a lot of that, that sort of thing. And then I guess the other parts to it, we do have like offline processing, like pipeline data, pipeline processing jobs and stuff that run again, another one that we built kind of in-house a long time ago, just around like, how do you manage a bunch of different pipeline jobs and the dependencies between them and when can they get executed and how long do they take that the engineer that we actually is just onboarding today and starting today that's what he's going to be focused on is figuring out like hey is there a way for us to migrate to something easier for us to manage that we can you know get running smoother and faster with less maintenance so we have a bunch of that and then the last is we actually do have an ml team a small ml team we have two ml engineers they have their own like, you know, training models and running recommendations off of those models and pulling feeds. And so we have some stuff that we run on TensorFlow there as its own, you know, service and systems. So I don't know, that's kind of like the high level of our backend services. We run on Kubernetes, so all of it gets deployed that way. We use Terraform and that for standing up new clusters and rolling out and deploying new services and those sorts of things. So
0: high level. There you go. What I've learned recently because It's still like news is definitely one of our main use cases because something that I didn't Realize from the outside but it's totally logical once you know it is that news traffic is very unpredictable. This makes sense, right? You look at it and you go, oh, yeah, of course if there's one viral article that somebody posts that one article is gonna get read 10 to 100 to tens of thousands of times more than the baseline traffic will and so you end up with these traffic spikes that are basically unpredictable, particularly in your case, right? At least news organizations that publish their own articles know when they're publishing articles. For you, Jeff Bezos might post his article about his divorce on Medium or whatever it was and suddenly every single news organization on the planet, links to that article, and you go, oh no, we did not see this coming at all, right? And so you're having to deal with a lot more spiky traffic than I think most people, or certainly than I would have assumed from the outside. Now that I know this from all these news organizations that we've worked with, makes total sense to me, right? It's logical, but I did not see that at all. And so what I'm hearing a lot of what you're saying is that you're not just setting up for scale, you're setting up for that spiky traffic where you're setting up to make sure that you can handle those traffic spikes, particularly because those are where the business value is. right? When that traffic spike comes in, assuming it's not a malicious actor, you wanna be up for that traffic spike, right? The, the people expect you to be up for that traffic spike. That's, a whole, that's one of the reasons why they use Medium. And so that poses whole other engineering challenges, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, it really does. Fortunately, I mean, it's similar. Like I said, I worked at Twitter for a while and they had similar spiky traffic issues, right? Like Ellen DeGeneres posted, I don't know, I'm gonna like date myself because this was a hundred years ago, but that at the Oscars <laughs> and she posts the selfie and it's like, hey, this is gonna of be course. the most retweeted thing. And it was, and it was, I mean, just really rough on the service, right? To just like all of a sudden get a ton of traffic on a specific post. And that is similar for Medium. Fortunately, we actually some of our uh like our longest tenured back-end DevOps engineers actually come from Twitter, which makes sense because Ev Williams came and started Medium, right? And so a lot of people that knew him or had experience with him at Twitter were the ones that came in early at Medium. And so a lot of the learnings, like that wasn't stuff that we were learning on the fly, it was stuff that We actually already had kind of the experience to understand and know roughly what the pitfalls are, how to handle it and those sorts of things. But that's been interesting. I mean, (laughs) at Medium, if you look through like past incidents and issues that have happened on the site, like some of them are named after posts, right? Where it's like, oh yeah, that incident, that was the, you know, whatever. I think there's one called the hot dog post as one of the incidents. And I don't even know what the story is, but I guess there was a post about hot dog, is a hot dog a sandwich or something. And it like completely (laughs) took down Medium at some point years ago. And so, yeah, you do, like, it's not it's not expected. Sometimes it happens in the middle of the night, sometimes hopefully you're online for it, but it
0: yeah, yeah, that's how it works. Yeah, absolutely. And then of course I have to ask about GraphQL. Medium, to me in, in my community, famously is based very heavily on GraphQL. And like you mentioned, you're handling 10,000 requests per second, which I think is somewhere near the order of minus of 25 billion per month, which is a ridiculous scale that not many people run at. How has GraphQL worked out for you, particularly with all this context in mind of being a relatively small engineering organization and only having 37 people for this massive system and this massive scale.
1: It's interesting because yeah, they switched over to GraphQL a couple years ago and it's been kind of like a bit of a learning curve for the team, right? Because not only is it like a, like a language or library learning curve, but it is just even an understanding like the cost of running it. And I actually don't personally have a ton of experience with GraphQL. Medium is my first company that I worked at where we've used GraphQL. But my understanding of it and a lot of these conversations that we have around it is just that like, it's really easy to do bad things with it, right? It's really easy if you're a client to not know that, hey, adding in that field is actually makes that call 10 times as expensive. So yeah, maybe you shouldn't do that. And it's like, well, I don't know, it's there. It's in the schema. Like I can't just add it as a field. And it's like, well, no, we got to probably go write that query differently or whatever. And so there was a lot of that, a lot of that where we had really inefficient, queries being being requested and, you know, things timing out because it's just like, nope, that query is taking too long. And so there was a lot of effort that went into that part of it. Just, you know, understanding like, let's uh, look at all the queries. Like, what are the, what are the heavy ones? What are the ones that take really long? And how do we optimize those? Does it make sense to split them into multiple queries? Does it make sense to do it a different way or whatever it is? We use almost, I would say it's almost exclusive GraphQL at this point. I think there are a few places where we still have just like REST JSON endpoints, but like those are like like our legacy ones, (laughs) anything new we build on top of GraphQL. And for the sake of GraphQL, like we use Apollo, we use it heavily, client and server. We do use fragments heavily, Mm -hmm. where we actually compose fragments on the client so that we're not like spamming the server with a lot of queries, but instead just like, you know, bubbling them up and composing them into one bigger query. And then the other thing that's made it manageable and actually has helped us a ton is the type safety part of it and using like GraphQL code gen for generating our query types so that you don't have to go, you know, dig through the code and figure out what is the query that works here. You just have the types locally and you can kind of put those together. Where it gets hard is not cleaning stuff up, right? It's really easy to remove a visual feature, but not remove it from the fragment. And so you're still querying stuff that you're just no longer using. And so there's just a lot that goes into that and just i mean we we're, we're not great at it but you know we but stuff that we talk about all the time around how do we how do we measure that how do we even know or alert on it like hey you know you're querying stuff that's not even being used anymore or this query is too slow so there's a lot there's a lot for us to learn still and do
0: but yeah we do use it really heavily yeah what i'm hearing you say really is there's trade offs. It's a technology that has some advantages around developer experience and type safety, and kind of maybe also on the fragment composition side, making for more efficient network requests ideally. But it also comes with trade offs. It makes performance much harder to observe. It's much easier as a developer to forget to remove a field from the query that I don't no longer need or I had a field that's really expensive. Like, there's just trade offs. And I think actually, one of the biggest, I guess, as a person really deep in this space, one of the biggest sentiments that we kind of have to deal with is that GraphQL was originally touted as this like silver bullet that's going to solve <laughs> all the problems. And it's the API layer of the future and it does everything perfectly, right? And the truth is, no technology is that way, right? Every technology has its use cases where it makes sense and use cases where it doesn't make sense. Every technology has its trade offs, right? Nothing is a silver bullet. And it has advantages and it has disadvantages. And people often, it's kind of almost a religion with the early adopters that are like, yeah, GraphQL. Because the only thing I ever want to use. I never want to go back to a REST API, and sure, it has its advantages, but you can't talk about those without also mentioning some of the disadvantages that you're talking about. I'm actually curious, with your kind of small engineering team and yet 80 microservices that you're running across 37 people, are, are you using something like Federation on the backend where you're composing these different schemas together that the microservices expose, or are you approaching your graphical layer kind of like as a central layer that it, all the requests pass through and then it kind of splits up into the microservices behind the scenes?
1: Yeah, we do that second one. So we have one service that handles our GraphQL queries that then does the work of knowing where to fetch that from. So yeah, we have one service that runs in Node that handles those fetches. I mean, then this is where like some of the inefficiencies come from, right? Because it's like trying to fetch data from multiple places. And sometimes it's like using shared queries on the back end between services that are like fetching way too much. So it's like, hey, I'm going to go fetch all the posts for this user just to get the number of posts so that I can return it in this query to show. And it's like, no, 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 don't do that. And it's like, oh, I don't know. That was the only, you know, that's the only uh, query that we have available. So that's where some of the issues just over time, as it grew really fast without a lot of, you know, it takes cleanup passes, right? It's like, hey, you build it and then you go through and you can see what are the commonalities and where can we simplify or, you know, consolidate. Otherwise, it just keeps ballooning. And so we were kind of at that point where a lot of it had ballooned and, wasn't quite, you know, efficient, but th- that is that is how it works for us. And then in between services, we use gRPC for everything. Mm-hmm. And so within our backend, it's always like, you know, type protobufs going between services. Yeah. And so w- fortunately, we don't have like a ton of places where we handle GraphQL on the backend. It's just one place that we kind of consolidate.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. I, I think every technology has its trade-offs, right? We've spoken with many companies that... Are using REST really heavily and they end up with a thousand endpoints where mm-hmm. nobody really knows which endpoint does what and then every time a developer needs some data they add a new endpoint because they're like, I don't know which one's still maintained, I don't know which one's still up to date, right? I don't know which one of these is really the endpoint that I'm supposed to use, let me just go create one for my use case, you know, just to make sure that I have that one endpoint and I get all the exact data that I want. And equally though, with REST you're relying on HTTP semantics, right? You're, you're slightly more kind of web friendly, right? Maybe it's more familiar to developers. There's less of that complexity that comes with having a new language and having to use a client and the server and all that stuff. Like you just have an endpoint and you return some JSON. There's a beauty that comes from that simplicity, right? And yet also it can equally be a mess. I think it all comes down to the engineering team to me. it's, It's always a cultural engineering team. Do you do the cleanup process? Do you engineer well? Does the business need that even? And then from there, how do you manage that as an engineering team?
1: The thing that I get worried about with GraphQL, because you're totally right. And that, I mean, like I said, I mean, I've played with it a bit. I've built a couple of things myself with GraphQL, but I haven't done it in production really hands on. But the things that I worry about are exactly what you mentioned, which is it can get bloated. It can't like one of our queries on Medium was like a 3000 line query. Like that's how long the request was. And it's like, whoa, that can't even be. True, that, that can't be necessary. And it's like, you look through and it's like, yeah, it's not. It's just, it's requesting so much because these components happen to be there. They may or may not get rendered. We don't know, but we're querying them anyway. Like, it was just like, holy smokes. And what it takes though is the diligence of being good at it and cleaning it up and knowing what performance is, what performance matters. Like what queries can't you do? How do you get rid of stuff when it's not being used anymore? Those are the things that are necessary to be really good at GraphQL, especially at scale with a team of people sharing. But those are the things that are the most easily ignored when you move to something like GraphQL right? Because it does it for you, right? You don't have to worry about it. Like, I don't care. I don't care what the query is. If I'm a client engineer, I can put whatever I want in there and it's going to give it to me in the format that I want it or in the structure that I want it. And that's the beauty of GraphQL. And it's like, yeah, but it's also the problem with GraphQL. It has so many pros and it has so many cons, but like you said, so does REST. It's the opposite. And so there is no like, is it clearly better? Is it clearly worse? I, in my mind, they're both great. It depends on what you're trying to do. For us, it's been super beneficial as we've been iterating on product and not having to change APIs as we iterate on product is actually amazing. Being able to share the same endpoints for our mobile clients as we do for our web clients and not have to worry about like, hey, yeah, but the views are a little bit different and they need different data. It's okay. It still works for us, right? And we don't have to worry about that, those inconsistencies or, you know, you have to load more data on web, even though you're not going to show it because the mobile client needs it on that endpoint or whatever. So there are like massive benefits in why I think it makes sense for us where we are. But I also like really encourage anyone who's getting into it is like, hey, just because it's easy doesn't mean you don't have to be good at it. You have to be good at it. Um, it takes real effort to be good at
0: it. Absolutely. Well, I think that leaves us on a perfect note for me to tie us off here for this episode. Luke, thanks so much for joining us. This was a fascinating conversation about the journey that you've had at Medium, the setup that you're running at this really large scale, and a little bit about GraphQL at the end as well, just so that we make the namesake of the podcast happy, and we also talk about that side of things. Thank you so much for joining us. If people want to follow you, if people want to learn more about the work that you do, where can they go? What do you want to plug?
1: You can follow me on Twitter, at LTM on Twitter. That's where I post most of my lame jokes, but also about the work that we're doing at Medium. You can also follow me on Medium. (laughs) I'm also at LTM on Medium. One of my goals is to post there more. And one of the things that our team is doing is we're trying to post a lot more. Medium actually has an engineering publication. Check it out. We actually do post quite a bit about some of the stuff that we're building how we build it. We're trying to post there a lot more and share some of the learnings and experiences that we've had because I think it has been super interesting and probably very applicable to companies both big and small since we're kind of straddling the two and, and handling both cases.
0: Beautiful. Listeners, you know where to go. Go follow Luke on Twitter and Medium as well as go check out the Medium Engineering publication. We'll link all that in the show notes so you can have it and can just click on the link and go take those actions. Luke, thank you so much for joining. Listeners, we'll see you next time. Thank you.